Welcome to the Grace Baptist Church podcast, and thanks for joining us for this episode. Before we begin, please take a moment to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. If you enjoy this content, please don't hesitate to leave us a five-star review and share this podcast with your friends. We'd like to extend an invitation to you and your family to join us for worship this week at Grace Baptist Church. We'd also love to connect with you online at gracekettering.org. Thanks again for joining us and enjoy the episode. Excited about what God's doing in our hearts here this week. I've sensed each night, each service, uh, God has been, um, he's been dealing with us, hasn't he? And I do want to, and I know I kind of like to summarize because I really do believe that um, one of the blessings of revival meetings and many sermons in a row is that cumulative effect. Um, You don't have a whole week to forget what you heard, you know what I'm saying? And uh, that cumulative effect of God speaking to our hearts can oftentimes um, put pieces together that we never would have dreamed. In Sunday school on Sunday, remember, we talked about the fact that when God reveals our lack, it's not because he's upset with us, right? When we become aware of our deficiencies, we shouldn't run from God. We shouldn't get insecure with God, but we need to go to God and recognize that if we will ask him to supply our lack, he will give. And he is not discriminatory in his giving. He will give to all men. He will give above and beyond that which he, we asked, and uh, he will not find fault with us for coming to him in our lack. Have you felt some lack this week thus far? <laughs> oh boy, me too, okay? Just because the preacher's up here preaching, it doesn't mean that the Spirit of God ain't smacking me between the eyes, okay? And uh, that's how you know God's really working when the preacher gets hit between the eyes while he's preaching. And uh, God's been working in my heart as much as he's been working in yours, I'm sure. And here this evening, I want to take things the next step. So on Sunday night, we really endeavored to take a look at the opposite of love, right? Love is the benchmark that God is looking for in our lives. We can have everything else right. We can have our standards right. We can have our worship right. We can uh, check all the boxes. But if love is absent from our lives, no matter how good we are, no matter how much we sacrifice, we get an F on God's test, right? And as we took a look at the verbs that come out, that spring out of a heart of true divine love, we saw that the opposite of that love is not hate, it is selfishness. Really the problem is is that we care more about ourselves, we prioritize ourselves more than God and more than other people. And that self-focused spirit is what robs our lives of that refreshment that love through us ought to give. Now, that being said, I told you we are going to be taking several sermons and really looking at that matter of selfishness. Because you got to understand and be convinced of the problem if you are going in any way to appreciate the solution. And I want to take one more sermon here tonight. One more aspect, and really this is not only going to seek to get to the heart of the problem, but this is going to begin to show us, at least give us some hints as far as 
the true solution is concerned. On Sunday night, we took a look at the fact that selfishness hides sin. Doesn't come clean. Love, though, does come clean. Last night, we took a look at the fact that selfishness harbors resentment. uh, Like a black hole, it attracts offenses. They get lodged in our soul. And instead of forgiving, instead of seeking reconciliation, instead, we just allowed them to fester and they produce a fruit of destruction, soured soul, ruined relationships all around us. And here this evening, I want to take a look at one more aspect. And that's this. Selfishness resists death. But love gives one's life for others. You know, I want you to think about this. One of the ways that we could think at this point in the game is that, okay, preacher, what you're telling me is that I just need to stuff it when it comes to my selfishness, and I just need to try hard to be more loving. But I want you to know that is not the solution. The solution is not to walk around telling yourself, got to be more loving, got to be more loving, got to be more loving. The solution is not to say, I'm going to go out of my way to try to love people more. That is not the solution. In fact, to think that adding love to a selfish heart is going to help is like putting a lens cap on your interferometric synthetic aperture LADAR device and expecting it to count the warts on your neighbor's nose down the street. Sorry, that was for one person in the room here today, okay. Listen, we cannot expect to add love to a selfish heart and for it to make anything better. You see, the solution is not adding love to your life. The solution is we got to do something about that selfish heart inside. And really the solution, the only solution... Is death. I want to open with a word of prayer. God in heaven, I do come to you here today admitting, Lord, that I need this here tonight. God, I pray that as I preach the word as you have given it to us, Lord, I pray that you would speak to our hearts. And like we heard our brother from the past, Mr. Ravenhill, speak about, oh God, would you be here tonight? Oh God, would you do what I could never do with mere words and persuasion? Would you please take the words and cause us to perceive and feel the divine realities that those words represent and I pray that you would manifest yourself. Oh God, on the one hand, would you please expose our selfish hearts? But would you also give us hope and show us the pathway to true divine love here tonight? God, I need you. I ask for your anointing and unction, and I thank you that you're a heavenly father that gives good things to them that ask. And I thank you for it. In Jesus' name, amen. You know, people have been trying to cheat death for thousands of years. I I did a little research on this. According to legend, a man named Gilgamesh tried to cheat death by allegedly earning immortality. But ultimately, if you know the story, he failed, right? He failed and he died a normal death. 
Did you know that the first emperor of China, his name is Qin Shi Huang, he tried to cheat death by banning the word death in his midst and by drinking an elixir of mercury. <clears throat> um, yeah, but ironically, the elixir is what killed him. <laughs> Pope Innocent VIII, great guy, <clears throat> he thought he could cheat death by injecting his body with the blood of children. You know, he died too. <clears throat> uh, there's a Hungarian countess. Her given name was Elizabeth Bathory. She took baths in the blood of murdered virgins to cheat death and to keep her skin smooth. <laughs> but she died, albeit with very smooth skin. <laughs> Nazi leader Heinrich Himmler tried to cheat death by searching for the Holy Grail, but he never found it, and he ended up killing himself with a cyanide pill. Did you know that today, in our world, people, uh, the transhumanism movement particularly is trying to cheat death by modifying our genetic code or by augmenting or replacing our body parts with technology. But I'm going to make a little prediction here, okay? Every one of them is going to die as well. You see, for thousands of years, people, humanity, hates death, and they do everything they can to avoid it. But I know another group of people that hates death even more. Christians. Because you see, when Christians are confronted with an opportunity to follow Jesus to his death, they recoil. They dig in and they hold back. And they do everything they can to avoid it. And you know why? It's because Christians don't believe their Bibles. You see, Jesus had a very different perspective when it comes to the matter of death. I want you to look at this. John chapter 12, please. John chapter 12. We're going to be looking at verses 24 and following Jesus, at a point in time in his life, was at a key moment. It was a shift. Up until this point, he was very popular. Up until this point, there were many people that loved him, that were following him. The healing was just, um, it, it was causing his popularity to spike. And yet there came a point in time in his life and ministry, verse 23 of John chapter 12, when Jesus said, that's not how it's going to be. He said this, Jesus answered them saying, The hour is come that the Son of Man should be glorified. Verily, verily, I say unto you, except a corn of wheat fall into the ground and die, it abideth alone. But if it die, it bringeth forth much fruit. He goes on and he says, He that loveth his life shall lose it, and he that hateth his life in this world shall keep it unto life eternal. If any man, he says, serve me, let him follow me, and where I am, there shall also my servant be. If any man serve me, him will my father 
honor. You see, in this passage, Jesus was speaking, especially in verse number 24, of his own coming death. He knew that in not too many days and weeks from that point in time, there was going to come a time when he would allow himself to be taken, and he would allow himself to be falsely accused, and he would allow himself to be mistreated, beaten, mocked. And finally nailed to a rough wooden cross. And he knew that as he hung on that cross, as he spared not his own life, that he would absorb the sins of all mankind. And that he as he hung there, he there as he suffered, would become the substitute that satisfies the holy, holy, holy justice of God Almighty. Jesus, the scripture says, tasted death for every man. Jesus, as he hung on the cross, it was an act of love. And that act of love led to his death. And Jesus here, he says, except a corn of wheat, he's using a metaphor, fall into the ground and die. It abideth alone. It remains what it is and nothing more. But if it die, a miracle happens. If it die, it no longer remains what it was before. It no longer stays just a small bit of potential, uh, potential energy. It becomes so much more. It bringeth forth much fruit. You see, Jesus knew that his death was the path to eternal life. But he doesn't stop by talking about himself in this passage. He goes on and he turns to his disciples and he tells them in, uh, in, in essence, you also need to die. You also need to follow me to your death. Yes, he knew on the one hand that his death would result in eternal life, but he also knew that our death would result in abundant life. I want you to get this, and I do not want you to miss this. The pursuit of love. That's what we're pursuing this week, is it not? 1 Corinthians chapter 14, follow after love, right? Pursue love. God does want us to pursue love. He does want us to improve in our love. But it's not just a matter of, adding love to our lives. No, it requires something radical. See, to pursue love, the pursuit of love is a pursuit of death. And that death results in supernatural life. But I want you to know here tonight, if you want that supernatural life, first, you're going to have to die. You're going to have to die. The title of my message here tonight is Decisions of Death. And I want you to know, as you are pursuing this perspective that values the good of others over and above what is good for me, you're going to have to grapple with the me part of that equation. And that me, no matter how much you suppress it, no matter how much you beat it down, no matter how much you ignore it, no matter how much you defer it, no matter how much you delay it, I'm telling you what, it's going to come back. 
the only solution is to put it to death. You know, as you and I here are taking a look into the future, there are going to be some things that God calls us to do that are diametrically opposed to the things that we want. There are going to be some aspects of pursuing love that are going to bring you face to face with things that cause us in our selfishness to recoil, to hurl, to dry heave, so to speak, okay? And that's why we need to make decisions of death. i got three decisions of death that I want to challenge you with here tonight. The first one, and forgive me, I'm going to depart from our text for just a few minutes here. The first decision of death is a little bit of review, but I want to put it to you this way. The very first thing that you need to put to death is you need to put your sins to death. Can I remind you of Sunday night sermon? Listen, you may have made it through Sunday night when we talked about Joshua chapter 7, Achan. And perhaps God put his finger on an area of disobedience, an area of deceit. And there is that area where you knowingly disobeyed the will of God. And perhaps in that service, God did a deep work in you. And perhaps in that service, maybe you even came to the front and you confessed it to God. And maybe you stood to your feet with the intention that you were going to go and for those that were offended and for those that needed to know, for those that God has placed into your life who needed to be a part of the solution, you know you should have had a, a, a conversation. You know you should have made a phone call, but it still hasn't happened. Can I tell you why? Because you, the self part of you, selfishness is still running the show. Listen, there are some things in life that God asks you to kill. And if you don't put those things to death, they will kill you. Listen, when it comes to this matter, you've got you've to make up your mind. Are you going to take Joshua's side or are you going to take Achan's side? I'm not going to spend a whole lot more time on this here tonight because I already preached an hour and 20 minutes on it on Sunday night. I, I think it was around that. But anyway, sorry to remind you of that. But listen, I really do believe that it's possible there could be some here in this room. God was very specific with you. And God brought up maybe even some very difficult things from your past. Maybe some things that would, if you expose them, really mess up your plans. But I'm going to say what I said again. I'd rather be right with God in jail. You know, um, I was talking to Pastor a little bit earlier today, and I was just sharing with him that, you know, the more I travel and the more I see things out and about, as a young person, I used to think, I grew up in a Christian home, so there's a certain sense in which I was sheltered from much. I was sheltered from some of the raw wickedness of some aspects of society, and I suppose I figured that uh, the kind of filth and wickedness um, that was not in my home, was not in other homes. Don't get me wrong, my home had plenty of issues. I had and have plenty of issues. But you know, when I got out, I began to hear stories of Christian parents that molest their children. 
when I begin to hear stories of people who on the outside give the appearance of godliness, who go home and beat their wives. When I begin to hear stories, I think I may have shared this, of missionaries who take their support and gamble it away. Literally gamble it away. When I begin to hear stories of people who stand in the pulpit and preach to thousands while at the same time are having an affair with underaged minors. It tells me that, you know what, I don't care how godly you look. And I don't care if you're a Tuesday night revival meeting kind of Christian. There could be some pretty major filth behind the scenes. There could be some secret sins. And listen, yes, we talk to God and I praise God that if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. But somewhere else in the book, it says he that covereth his sins shall not prosper. And you might say, well, preacher, I'm not covering my sins from God anymore. God knows. Yeah, guess what? He knew, he knew before you ever told him to. God knows everything. God knows every dirty thing you ever looked at. God knows every hateful thought you ever thought. God knows every whisper of gossip you ever sent out over the text stream. God knows every time you searched for a keyword, knowing full well what you would find in the search results. He knows not only that you went to the search page on Instagram, but he knew what you were expecting to find there. And I'm telling you, God already knew of your sins because you can't hide your sins from God. The eyes of the Lord are in every place, beholding the evil and the good. And that verse, therefore, can't be talking about covering your sins from God. He that covereth his sins shall not prosper. So it must be talking about somebody else then, huh? Again, I'm trying not to re-preach my sermon, but I just can't get past it right now. When we in pride don't let other people know, when we in pride withhold information that other people, that some ought to know, like I said, I'm not saying you need to post on social media about every last thing you've ever done. I'm not saying that you need to record a selfie video of you spilling your guts and put it out there for the world to see, but I'm saying there are some people who need to know, and you know who they are. last part of that verse says, but whoso confesseth and forsaketh them shall have mercy. Doesn't mean there won't be consequences, but they'll be better than they would have been had you been caught. So that being said here, I just want to urge you and remind you here this evening that this pursuit of love is a pursuit of death. And one of the things that needs to die is this matter of your sins. Joshua put Achan to death and it was the right choice and it resulted in great good. It resulted in great power, in great miracles of the forward march of God's people in the land of promise. And I fear that many times the reason why we're marching forward, we're not marching forward is because we're hiding stuff under our tents. Secondly, not only must you put your sins to death, secondly, you also must put your sons to death. You say, preacher, what? <laughs> um, don't turn there for sake of time, but I want to remind you of the story in Genesis chapter 22. 
In Genesis chapter 22, there was a man who had been called to do something great. Actually, he wasn't called to do something great. He was just promised that God was going to do something great in him and through him. The man's name was Abraham. You know the story. It was a miracle. God promised him that he and his wife would have a child together even in their old age. They didn't think it was possible. So Abraham made it happen himself in a way that was clearly the product of the flesh. But then God did it the way he said he was going to do it. And Abraham with his wife Sarah had Isaac. And Isaac was the son through whom God's unbelievable promise was going to come. God promised that his descendants would be as the stars of the sky innumerable. He promised that through him and his child of promise, everybody on the earth was going <clears throat> to be blessed. Abraham was excited about that son. He loved that son. It was his one and only son. This son was his ticket for God to fulfill his will. And yet, in Genesis chapter 22, God shows up to Abraham and says that I want you to take your son. As if to twist the knife, he says, your only son. And I want you to take him to Mount Moriah and I want you to sacrifice him to me. Can you imagine the conflict that would have happened in Abraham? Not only the thought of watching a knife plunge into his son, his flesh and blood, but the actual thought of him doing it, the thought of him, his child, the one that God had promised to bless the entire earth, now God's telling me to cut him off? That doesn't make any sense! You know, Abraham could have cut and run. He could have said, well, you know what, God, you gave this to me, and I don't understand what you're doing. It doesn't make a whole lot of sense to me, so thanks for the son. I'll see you later. I'm going back to Ur. He didn't do that, though. Abraham was a man of faith. He was a man who loved the Lord. I want to say, say this to you, friends, here tonight. There are some things that God asks you to kill that don't make a lot of sense. There are some things that God asks you to sacrifice that almost seems contrary to human wisdom. Sometimes God, in the pursuit of your heart, in the pursuit of bringing you down the pathway of being a vessel of his love, sometimes God asks you to give things up that boggle your mind. Sometimes he asks you to give up something that's precious to you, like in this case, Abraham and his son. Maybe there's something in your life that's just very meaningful to you, something that you take great pleasure in that gives you joy on a regular basis. You could call it your happy place, your happy thing, your favorite activity, maybe even your favorite person. And maybe there comes a point in time when God, in this journey that we call the pursuit of God, when God puts his finger on that and says, I want it to go, and we come back and say, God, there's nothing wrong with that, and we argue with God. Or we come back and say, but wait a second, God, this doesn't make sense. This thing is good. And God says, I don't care. I want you to give it up. I want you to follow me. And we, our brains fritz out. 
we in our hearts, it doesn't make sense. And many times, self takes over and we refuse to submit to the good hand and will of God. Listen, you need to put your sons to death. Maybe it's something that is prosperous to you. Something that actually seems like it's advancing your life or even the cause of Christ, it seems. Years ago, um, when I was in high school, I never promised that I wouldn't talk about web design again, okay? <clears throat> Years ago in high school, I don't remember who it was I was talking to about that in the lobby earlier. When, when I was in high school, my senior year of high school, I went to Westchester Christian School in Westchester, Pennsylvania. And uh, there, I, I loved computers. I loved computers all growing up from the time my dad got our first computer. I loved them quickly. I figured things out my, that my dad didn't know how to do, and I just enjoyed it, okay? And in high school, um, I went to a Christian school uh, only for my senior year of high school. And I found out they had computer classes. And I thought, oh, that's really cool. And so I wanted to see what I was allowed to take. And so they said, well, typically we have folks start with computer one. I said, what's that? And they said, well, you know, that's office applications and, uh, you know, that kind of thing. And I thought, okay, sure, I'll take that. I said, what about computer two? Can I take that too? Sure, if you want to. Are you kind of proficient in that stuff? Uh, maybe I, I dink around a little bit. Computer 2 was web design, okay? And um, I loved both classes. That was way back in the day of Microsoft front page. Uh, I don't even think there, uh, that CSS existed at that period of time, okay? This was back in the dark ages of the internet when everything looked like a GeoCities site. It was nasty, okay? And some of you don't know what I'm talking about. But um, I loved it, and it wasn't the kind of thing where I just did the assignments in class to get a grade. I took stuff home, and, and at home, I remember I experimented with a program called Macromedia Flash, and I wanted to make the coolest whiz-bang website that, I, uh, that any of my classmates had ever seen, and so I called it Bobby's World of Weirdness. And on, on the front page, I had this cool animation. It had the, the, the words Bobby's World of Weirdness, and I had a snowman on a snowboard doing like a flip across it every every once in a while it would just fly up and over there on that website I had the uh, 2002 version of memes on there I had a whole page devoted to what I called funny pictures which were the precursor to memes okay I had a whole page that had a whole catalog of video games that I had found online Okay, one of the precursors to Flappy Bird. Okay, it was like a, a little helicopter that went up and down. I had that on there. In fact, one time during my senior year of high school, I went down to the computer lab and I, I walked in. I didn't normally go to the computer lab during, during the lunch break. I went down to the computer lab and I looked around and I realized every single computer is on and every single person at the computer is on my website playing the video games. <laughs> okay, I loved it, I loved it. In fact, I realized there that year that I enjoyed web design so much, I enjoyed technology so much, I began to realize that I could maybe even make a career out of it. Nothing wrong with that. Could be the very way that God was gonna provide for me in the future. But I'll never forget during my senior year, uh, they had a weekend retreat, and at that weekend retreat, a man that I hold very dear to me came and preached. I'd never heard this man in my life preach ever, ever, and uh, he came and he preached, and all I can say was God was there. I had never even cried in a sermon. I wept all the way through one sermon on three death sentences for disrespecting teens, okay? 
That was the title of the message. And when I came through that weekend, God did something in me. About a week after that, an evangelist came to our church for revival meetings, and at that, those revival meetings, he began to preach on truth that my heart was ready to hear about God dependence for spirit enablement. And God used that week in my life. He caused truth to blow the doors off of what I thought was even possible with God. And there, that, that week, I began to understand how victory worked and how God could change my life. And I began to have hope. wasn't too long, right around that period of time. I was sitting on the back pew uh, where my family sat at church on a Sunday morning. It wasn't, the evangelist wasn't there. It was our normal preacher preaching. He didn't even preach on this topic. But God spoke to my heart. And he said, Bobby, I want you to be a preacher. And I remember going, you're talking to me? I wasn't very eloquent. I couldn't really talk much. I was very shy. In fact, I still am, believe it or not. And um, I'm the kind of person that will agree to something pretty quickly and then freak out about it later. I don't know if anybody else is like that. I'm like that, okay. I said, okay, sounds good. I'll be a preacher. We went to get in the van on the way home. My mom and dad were in the two front seats. Um, I, my dad married again when I was 16. That's a whole story. My mom was a missionary to Africa for 15 years who knew how to pray the devil out of people. And one of the reasons why I'm in the ministry today is because she interceded for me. Um, but I told my mom and dad, I said, hey, after the service, God called me to be a... What, Bob? God called me to be a preacher. And I said, yes. What have I done? My mom turned around and she looked at me and she said, Bobby, what God calls you to do, he'll enable you to do. And good night. I've been, I've been bearing that out ever since. But you know, when God called me to preach, when God called me to serve him, I died to something. I'll be honest with you, there was no wrestling match over web design. There was no great 20 verses of just as I am white knuckle invitation or anything like that. No, there was a death. <laughs> there was a death I never even considered pursuing that anymore. I never even thought about it. Now, later on in my life, God gave me opportunities and he actually revived those talents and gave me an opportunity to use it for the Lord in the ministry. And I'm thankful for that. But you know what? Before God could use it, it had to die. And sometimes the pursuit of love, well, always in the pursuit of love, God asks you to put things to death that may not make sense in the moment. See, we got to put to death you're our sons, maybe that's something that's precious to you. Maybe it's something that's that, that prosperous to you. Maybe it's something that's promised to you. Um, 2014, I was in San Antonio, Texas. Uh, youth pastor I had been with, he called me up and he said, hey, Brother Bosler, he said, my son Andy, um, he's in Bible college right now uh, at, uh, at Maranatha Baptist University, uh, great school. And uh, he said, um, I, uh, I'd really like for him to travel with you. He said, what, what's your availability? And I said, well, I said it would have to be uh, either next spring or maybe the following spring. I said, I'd love to consider he's a sharp young man. In fact, he's an amazing young man. When I was there the, uh, a year prior to this, um, this young man was a teenager. 
and you all have seen, many of you have seen Cola Clash, okay, so you know we go out recruiting. This teenager began competing with one of my team captains to see who could get more recruits, and he almost beat my team captain as a teenager without any training. So I was very interested in getting this young man on the team. His dad calls me, said, I'd like Andy to travel with you. I said, oh yeah, absolutely, have him give me a call. I'd like to talk to him about it. So not too long after this, Andy calls me up and he said, hey, Brother Bosler, I want you to know I've really been praying about this, uh, of traveling on your team. I said, I, 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 my dad told me it'd have to be probably next, next spring and I'd have to take off some time from school. And he said, could you pray with me about something? I said, oh, absolutely. What, what, what is it? He said, well, I kind of floated the idea with some of my superiors and with the finance office. And I don't know if you know this, but I'm here on a scholarship, a JROTC scholarship that's paying for all four years. And when I broached the subject with them, they said, oh, that's fine, you can travel, but you're going to lose the rest of your scholarship. All of it. I said, okay, Andy, that settles it. You can't travel with me. I said, I can't have you give up all that kind of money. I said, no way, no. Thank you so much. I would, if, if things change at some point, I would be more than happy to have you on the team. And he interrupted me and he said, Mr. Bosler, with all due respect, if God wants me to come with you, it's all the same to you. I'd like to do it anyway. I looked at my phone and I thought, what is this? Well, you know, God led him to travel with me and he did give up his scholarship. And he died. That young man was probably one of the most used young men that I think I've ever had on my team. We had hundreds and hundreds of young people saved. We broke all kinds of records there that summer. God was present in an unbelievable way in our meetings, and I'll tell you why. Because, because he died. He put his son, that provision, that thing that was promised to him, to death. There was life that sprang out of that death. You need to put your sins to death. If you haven't dealt with the sins God worked in your heart about the other night, you need to do that or it's going to kill you. You need to put your sons to death. It may not make sense, but if God is saying, give it up, don't try to reason it out with God. But thirdly and finally, and this is where we're going to come back to the text, you know, in those first two examples, really the issue isn't the sin, and really the issue isn't the sons. Those really aren't the issues. In both cases, there is a much deeper issue that would prevent us from putting the sins to death. There's a deeper issue that would prevent us from putting the sons to death. And this is what it is. You not only need to put your sins and sons to death, you need to put yourself to death. See, the greatest thing that God wants to die is you. God knows the amazing potential inside of you. Again, if you look at the verse, verse 24 again, he said, except a corn of wheat fall into the ground and die. That kernel of wheat has amazing potential inside of it. The potential is not a matter of addition. It's a matter, not even just of multiplication. It is an exponential increase. That kernel of wheat has inside of it the ability to multiply itself thousands of times. And God knows the potential that's inside of you, and I would say it's far greater than the potential that's inside the kernel of wheat. 
But here's the problem. The husk of self is keeping it bottled up. God wants you to let that husk be broken so that the life of Jesus, so that the love of Jesus can bring forth much fruit. This matter of putting yourself to death, it's not suicide. That's not what I'm talking about. But sometimes it feels like it. It's not just necessarily death to this, that. The issue isn't the issue. The issue is the heart. See, what this is, is it's letting God kill you. It's giving everything up to follow him. Again, look at our text again, verse 25. It says, he that loveth his life shall lose it. One of the greatest reasons, I think, why we don't have revival is we really don't want it. One of the reasons I'm convinced is why we really don't love is because we don't really want it. We want our sick little thrills and pleasures. We want to have our own little life that we can do our own little things with and we can please ourselves I have a whole other message that sometimes I'll include in this, uh, in this progression. But in uh, James chapter 4, he says the source of the conflict in your life is your lusts. And the idea of that word lusts is not just that the strong desires are with, that are within us. It's actually a different word. It's the word from which we get the word hedonism. Hedonism is a philosophy that says the number one purpose of life and living is pleasure. And that Greek word, I had one lexicon that defined it this way, it is anything or anyone that is a source of happiness to you. And so often in our lives, that which calls the shots, that which determines the priorities of our day, that which determines what we say, what we do, how we spend our money, is not what God wants. It's what's going to make us happy. See, if we love our life, if we cling to our life, if we hang on to our life and refuse to let God take it, what we are going to experience, well, I don't want to preach that whole message. We're not going to get what we're looking for. We're going to find conflict. We're going to find disappointment. We're going to find ourselves drifting far from God. We're going to find ourselves hurting one another like we talked about these first two nights. We're going to find ourselves hiding sin. We're going to find ourselves a, a, a jumbled up mess of anger and resentment. We're going to find ourselves not passing God's test of love. We are going to ruin our lives. We are going to mess up in a certain sense what God has in store for us in the future. And what God is calling us to do is to come to Him and stop Loving our lives. Why do you spend your money on the things that you spend them on? Why do you get that streaming subscription? I'm not preaching against it and I'm not saying that it's always wrong. But I'm asking you, why do you spend that $8, $10, $12 every month? Because I got it. Because I like it. Why, why do you spend your time on your phone the way you spend it? Why do you have the apps on your phone that you have? Why do you scroll on the feeds that you scroll on? 
And I will tell you, in my life many times, and I'm sure in your life, it's not because I think it's going to further God's cause. It's not because I think God wants me to do it. It's because I want to do it. And I'm telling you that I want to. That, oh, well, I don't know. It just makes me happy. Oh, this is how I relax. Oh, this is how I vegetate. This is how I wind down. Do you not see how we're loving our lives? Listen, God wants us to enjoy good things. Please don't get me wrong. He's not calling us to go and join a hermitage or become a monk or a, a nun or something like that. He's not calling us to get rid of every good thing out of our lives. But I'm asking you this, why? Why do you spend your lives the way you spend them? And I think so often our lives are spent cushioning and comforting ourselves and creating an environment in which we can please ourselves all day long, every day. Listen, some of you don't work. Uh, some of you work not so that you can so much provide, not so much so you can so much sustain yourself, but you work to buy things that please you. The motivation, the reason for advancement the reason for putting in those few extra hours is so you can have a little extra money to spend so that you can do the things that you want to do. And I'm not saying that we shouldn't work hard. I'm not saying we shouldn't have goals. I'm not saying that we shouldn't take vacations. Please, don't misunderstand me. I'm just asking, why do you do what you do? I want you to see this. He says, he that loveth his life shall lose it, and he that hateth his life in this world shall keep it unto life eternal. Just keep in mind what he's talking about. He's saying, except that corn of wheat fall into the ground and die, it remains what it becomes nothing more. But if it dies, there is a miracle that happens. So, my disciples, he says, if you just cling on to your life, if you want to preserve things, and, and if you just want, if you love that little existence that you have and those little thrills that you have, that's fine. Go ahead. Whatever. You'll remain what you are and you'll never be anything more you're going to miss out on something. But if you hate your life in this world. Now, I, I understand when we hear this, those words hate, we, we think of certain things. You got to understand the Hebrew way of thinking here and the way this would have come across at the time. He was not saying that you need to walk around and say, I hate my life. Some of you might say, well, yeah, I, hate, I do hate my life. No, what he's saying is by comparison, the love which, with which you love the Lord needs to make your love of your life look like hatred in comparison. In other words, you need to so value and so treasure what God wants that it makes it look like you hate your life. I remember many years ago um, when I first announced to my family that God had called me to preach and that I was going to go off to Bible college, I remember I had my aunt come to me and I remember she said to me, are you going to get a backup occupation? <laughs> and I remember I looked at her and I said, well... Not necessarily. <laughs> she was like, oh, okay. And I could tell there was a certain sense in which she was thinking, that doesn't sound very wise. And I'll be honest with you, our families had definitely some tight times throughout the years. God has always taken care of our needs. He's always provided for us. But you know, sometimes, and in fact, there was a point in time when God did a very specific work in my heart and God gave me his guidelines for my life when it came to employment. 
I'm not going to tell you what those are, but God gave me very clear guidelines for what he wanted me to do and what he did not want me to do. And there's a certain sense in which, from the standpoint of just human and conventional wisdom, you could look at some of these things and you could say, have a great poor life. <laughs> but I say, you know what I value far more than financial security? You know what I value far more than a nice house? You know what I value so much more than a glitzy, glamorous vehicle? Doing what God wants me to do. Listen, we need to, we need to prefer, listen, the, the point that I have here is this death to self is death to self preference. It's not about what you want. It's not about what you would prefer. One commentator put it this way, the person who loves his life will lose it. It could not be otherwise. For to love one's life is a fundamental denial of God's sovereignty, of God's rights, and a brazen elevation of self to the highest point of one's perception, and therefore an idolatrous focus on self, which is the heart of all sin. Another commentator said, John means us to understand that loving the life is a self defeating process. It destroys the very life it seeks to retain. You know, I want to ask you in your life, this pursuit of love is going to lead you to the point where you're going to have to choose the good of someone else over the good of you. And that's not just a case-by-case -case basis. What has to happen is you have to die to the right to choose what you want. Um, back in, in November, uh, I was driving back from a meeting that I'd had in western Wisconsin, and it was a weird day. Um, the youth pastor told me about his former pastor. He and his wife were, uh, she was on their way to the hospital to have a baby, and they hit a deer. <laughs> and um, he, he even told me, he said he got out, and he looked at the radiator, and it wasn't leaking. He thought, okay, let's keep going. So they kept going to the hospital, and she got there in time and had the baby and all that. And uh, later on in that, that day, uh, while I was preaching there, um, he told me as I was about to leave, he said, hey, be careful. The bucks are all over the place right now. Just be careful. And I remember getting into my, my van and thinking, I'm going to hit a deer on the way home. And I remember as I got into the van, I wasn't 15 minutes down the road when all of a sudden, <laughs> oh, no. I drove for another mile and a half in denial. That couldn't have been a deer. Van's still driving. Temperature gauge is still where it's supposed to be. Maybe I can drive the three hours and get home. And, and then I thought, you know what, I better pull over. And, and I remembered what he said about investigating the radiator, looking for leaks, and I got out and looked underneath, and it was drip, 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 drip. And I thought, oh, no. I, I, in fact, when I got to the front, it was all rumpled and crinkled, and the, left, uh, the right uh, headlight was just completely demolished. And I called up the youth pastor, and thankfully I was close enough, they brought the church van, and I was able to take that home. And we ended up on a very urgent quest very urgent quest to replace the van because for us we have a van and we have a 2001 f-350 7.3 liter diesel still running 283,000 miles still going us uh, sort of strong but anyway we I don't we don't want to drive that thing all over town okay uh, especially with the price of diesel the way it is and so we had to find a van 
And good night, we went out and we looked at all kinds of vans. At first I started cheap and I began to realize everything that's cheap is junk out there in this current used car climate, okay? As I was looking, you know, we go out, all it kind of look, look, looks good in the pictures and we're thinking, wow, this person knows how to use Photoshop, you know? And uh, we're looking and I'm starting to get disillusioned and then I saw this one van not too far away from where we were staying and we went down and we looked at it. It was weird, like as soon as we got there, a blizzard just was snowing really hard and because of that, I, I took it on a test drive, but I couldn't really push it. And, and I, I went inside and I began to negotiate with a guy and he wasn't budging. And we kind of had in mind a certain amount of money that we would have liked to spend. Okay. And I remember um, I, I made him the offer. It was a little bit above what we were wanting, but this van looked pristine. So I made him the author, offer. He said, I'll talk to my dad, the owner, and I'll get back to you. And... Um, as we were driving home, I thought, I don't know. Maybe that's the one, maybe it's not. Here's how I roll when it comes to vehicles. I just want what God wants. I just want what God wants. And so as we're on the way home, I thought, man, that van's nice. But God, if you don't want us to have it, I don't want to touch that thing with a 10-foot pole. And I made a comment to my wife, and I said, boy, it sure be good of God for him to like plop a thousand dollars in our lap over the weekend just to let us know that this is the right van. So we go home, morning service happens in the afternoon. I'm laying in my bed, getting a little bit of rest. My wife had gone into the building and checked her mail. She came inside, she walked in and she had an envelope in her hand and she just looked at me. She said, here, take a look at this. I opened it up, it's a check for a thousand dollars. And I thought, the Lord wants us to have this van. And I thought, that's it. God confirmed it. This is the van. I loved it. Beautiful color. Man, it was like the touring edition with all the bells and whistles. I like bells and whistles. I know some people don't like bells and whistles. I like bells and whistles personally. And man, I was excited because I thought God said this is his will. And yeah, sure, I like it. Sure, it's good. Sure, it's nice. But man, the most exciting thing to me is that God confirmed his will to me. I even preached about it there that night. They had me preach on Sunday night, and I preached about uh, uh, how, I don't even remember what I preached, but I remember I told that story. But um, <laughs> that next day, I brought somebody who knew all about vehicles with me, and we went down to take a look at it. Mr. Hull went down with me to take a look at it. And we took it for a test drive. And again, the snow was gone by this time. Out on the test drive, not five minutes down the road, the check engine light comes on. We pull over into a neighborhood and we're just investigating. We go to the back and we find all kinds of Bondo ripples on the back panel. We noticed that one of the side panels had been replaced. And the more we looked at this thing, we, more, we realized this thing ain't as nice as it initially appears. And you know what I could have done? I could have said, well, you know, I mean, I kind of like it. Bells and whistles, right? But you know what I wanted? I wanted God's will. And I thought, well, I don't even understand this. You confirm this to me with your $1,000? I don't understand this, but Lord, I'm going to submit to you. I don't want to keep looking. I'm tired of looking. <laughs> I'll be honest with you, probably the next day or so, I maybe got even a little bit desperate, maybe a little bit panicky. I remember at one point I was out, I had driven a lot further than I wanted to drive to look at another vehicle, and it was a piece of junk. 
And I remember as I was coming back, I was just sick of it. I was, it was, I was kind of at the point where I was just like flailing and just running at any old opportunity that I could find, just driving to look at any old vehicle. And to be honest with you, I stopped talking to God about it. I stopped praying about it. I was just thinking, I just need, I know if I see the right vehicle, I'll know that it's the right thing. And I remember I was coming out of the dealer in that other church's van, okay? Coming out of the dealer, and I was coming across a, a divided highway, and I wanted to go straight across, and as I got in the middle, I looked, I saw the one vehicle pass me, and so I kept going, and another vehicle, vroom, inches from my front bumper. And I, I probably took about 15 minutes to cool down before I called my wife and told her what had happened. Thankfully, there was no impact, but it was like the Lord said, okay, you need to stop doing this, and you need to let me do it. You need to get under my authority. You're taking hold of this. You are starting to run the show. I got something for you. I'm going to take care of you. Stop freaking out and just trust me. You know, it's so easy, uh, again, to maybe wrap up the story. That next day, uh, my wife and I, we, we went and looked at something, and the Lord was clearly in it, and he had confirmed the price range with $1,000, gave us peace about the vehicle, and we're so happy with the vehicle that he got us. But that being said, so often, if we want it, we buy it. If we want to see it, we see it. If we want to do it, we do it. And God's calling us in the pursuit of his love to die. Really, you could phrase death as absolute surrender here. You could phrase death, this death to self-preference, as saying, God, you know what? Your will is always more important than what I want and what I prefer. It's not only death to self-preference, it's death to self-guidance. Look at the next verse here, verse number 26. If any man serve me... Let him follow me. Okay, think about it. If you follow somebody, you know what you're doing? You keep an eye on where they are. When they turn right, you turn right. When they turn left, you turn left. And the goal is that where they are, there you are. Okay? When you follow somebody, you are no longer determining where you go and when you go there. See, this is a death to self-guidance. He says uh, that where I am... There shall also my servant be. Listen, this isn't about just being passive and sitting back and doing nothing. This is a matter of focusing on Jesus. This is a matter of, uh, of deciding that I am not going to be the one to determine my future. I want God's will for my future. I want God's will for my afternoon. I want God's will for what I do when I get home from church tonight. I want to be where he is. One commentator said this of this passage, the servant must follow his Lord and be where his Lord is. This must be understood in light of the previous verse. Being where the Lord is entails suffering. It means losing the life for the master's sake. There is no other way of Christian service. How much of your life is self-determined? How much of your plans are your plans? Listen, we devise our ways, but the Lord directs our steps. But so often, we come up with our plans and then God messes them up. Has God ever messed up your plans before? <laughs> he does it to me all the time. And here's how, listen, it's not saying that we should plan ahead. It's not saying that we should not uh, foresee the evil and hide ourselves. It doesn't say that we shouldn't plan for the future and be responsible. But what it's saying is this, when God messes it up, 
you need to submit to him. Not only do we need to die to self-preference and self-guidance, we also need to die to self-preservation. Look at uh, verse number 27 here. It says, Jesus, uh, Jesus said, now is my soul troubled. Remember what he was talking about. Remember the primary meaning. Uh, again, Jesus was talking about his own coming death and the miraculous results that would come from that, calling his disciples to follow him to death so that there can be both eternal life and abundant life, okay? He's calling them to follow him and do what he did to be where he is. And here he returns to his own plight and he says, Now is my soul troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour? He says, you know what? The death that I'm staring in the face right now, it's a hard thing to look at. It doesn't bring me human pleasure. It troubles my soul, Jesus said. But what am I supposed to do? Say, God, take it away. Am I supposed to say, hey, God, keep, I don't want to die. Keep me back from dying. He says, no, but for this cause came I unto this hour. It's why I'm here! Can I submit to you it's why you're here too? God didn't save you to live a luxurious Christian life. He didn't save you so now you don't live a, guilt, a guilty life. He didn't save you just so you don't cry yourself to sleep wondering where you're going to go when you die. He didn't save you so that you can get a good Protestant work ethic and improve your life and the lives of your family. That's not what he saved you for. He saved you to follow him to his death. And so often, instead of following him to his death, we get a wild look in our eye. Whenever he calls us to die, we get this crazed, animal-cornered look in our eyes and we scrabble and we scrape and we try to figure out a way to avoid death. I, I was in Colorado. There's this tall gangly pastor out in Greeley, Colorado. And uh, this, I, if you've been to Colorado, they have a pest out there, um, prairie dogs, okay? Prairie dogs might look cute, but apparently they destroy fields and everything and it's terrible and he told me he said if you see a prairie dog here I'm trying to uproot them we got a bunch of them on the property he said let me know we'll kill it so we were standing in the church and I looked down the hallway and they had a glass door there and I saw a little prairie dog with its little paws peering in at us through the glass door and I said pastor prairie dog he said all right you go corner it I'll go get something so I went I ran out and that prairie dog took off and somehow I ended up chasing that prairie dog into the air conditioning enclosure back behind the building. That prairie dog ran up into the corner and there it turned around and faced me with its back up against the corner. Okay, I'm not, this is not evangelistically speaking, this is what happened. He's got his back up against the corner. I'm walking up and I'm trash talking the prairie dog. I'm saying, listen, you looked in the wrong window, man. You're going to get it. I don't know what he's going to get, but you're going to get it in the head, man. And that thing got a crazed look in his eye. I do not lie. That prairie dog put its pudgy little arms up on the corner and began shimmying itself up the corner 
of this corner. It began climbing up, and I practically heard, bomb, 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 bomb. Okay, it was nuts. The pastor came around the corner with a shovel in his hand, and I said, there he is, pastor. You better get him before he gets up to the soffit. Pastor got that shovel, and he went, and clang, the thing fell down. It began scrabbling out of there. That pastor, big, gangly, running with the shovel over his head, clang, clang, clang. I have a picture on my phone of a dead prairie dog in the rocks of their garden outside of their church. And you know, it's so funny to me, that crazed look in the eye of that prairie dog, I've seen it in Christians who are being called to follow Jesus to his death. Oh, not in the general speakings of things, but when they get confronted with a specific area of surrender. They throw out the theological arguments why absolute surrender might be just a little bit too extreme, why they justify this particular thing that God is calling them to give up. And really, they stop thinking logically, and all they're doing is trying to preserve their lives. See, when we die, that's when we really live. I remind you of Philippians chapter 2, Paul said, Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God, thought it not robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, took upon him the form of a servant and was made in the likeness of men. And being found in fashion as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. But remember, that's not the end of this passage, is it? Wherefore God also hath highly exalted him. Years ago in Pennsylvania, there was a young lady who had huge potential. She was a believer and a Bible college student who was training to serve the Lord and had just finished her freshman year. But she also had a huge problem. She had just slept with a guy she didn't even know. She went back to college not knowing that her problem would get even worse because she was pregnant. Shortly into the semester, she took a pregnancy test and discovered that she was pregnant and her college plans were pretty much ruined. <laughs> or were they? She knew that it would be easy to hide her sin and terminate the pregnancy, but she couldn't do it. It wasn't right. It was right then and right there that she made a decision of death. She called her parents and unloaded the truck about what she had done and brought her sin out into the open. Her parents forgave her and made arrangements for her to leave college and settle down in a family's home in rural Pennsylvania for the duration of the pregnancy. But she had another decision of death staring her in the face whenever she looked down at her growing womb. What would she do with the baby? She knew that the selfish thing to do would be to keep the baby for herself. After all, she couldn't expect her parents to support her, and she certainly didn't have the means to support the baby herself as a 19-year-old. A choice to keep the baby would be a purely selfish choice and would not have the child's best interests in mind. The child, though a product of fornication, was precious to her. She didn't want to give the baby up, but she knew that she must. She knew that God wanted her to do it, so she chose a placement family with a reputable adoption service. After nine months, she delivered a healthy baby boy and immediately was faced with another decision of death. Would she stick to her decision to give the baby up? In the hospital room with her new baby in her arms, she died to her preferences. 
her own wisdom and her own ability to hang on to any influence she might have on the child. She signed on the dotted line to give up her rights to the child, to deliver him to the adopted family, and to seal the records in what was known as a closed adoption. And just like that, he was gone. 33 years later, after years of wandering and wondering, she received a letter in the mail from the adoption agency. They wanted to speak to her on the phone and ask that she call them as soon as possible. Curious, she called and they said that someone had left a message for her. The message was from her son, and this is what it said. I want you to know that I am saved and serving the Lord as an itinerant evangelist. My parents raised me for the Lord, and now I'm married and have three wonderful children. Your decision to give me up was the right decision, and God has used it for great good in my life and in my family. I prayed about making contact for years, but haven't wanted to risk any negative repercussions in your life or family by making contact. As much as I would like to meet you, I also want you to feel the complete freedom to take what was just shared and be encouraged without making contact. If, however, you feel it would not jeopardize your current relationships, I would be very much open to the possibility of connection. After weeping for joy, she told the agent that she would most definitely like to reconnect. They, in response, told her her son's name, Bobby Bosler. On the first Mother's Day after our reunification, I wrote this poem for my birth mom that I think summarizes her decisions of death and the results that followed. The seed. To plant a seed into the ground where I can no more view, where love's sweet gaze of tenderness is blind, tis hard to do. You find the seed beyond your grasp, Beyond your loving care, you're powerless to do a thing except to kneel in prayer. You feel as if you've given up a task that should be yours. Your weakness, fears, and dark regrets as one great army war against your faith, your hope, the love that led you to this plight. But yet you know deep down inside the choice you made was right. While seed lays dormant in the ground, all hope has not been lost, for God the Lord of life and death has taken up your cost. The miracle within the soil is not man's task to work. And yet, without surrender's choice, that seed be lone and dark. We never know just what will come when to our will we die. But God, who raised the dead, that seed will greatly multiply. So thank you for your step of faith to plant me in the sod. Your love and your surrendered choice have brought much fruit to God. I remind you, except the corn of wheat fall into the ground and die, it abideth alone. But if it die, it bringeth forth much. Can I have every head bowed and every eye closed here tonight? In fact, if we could all go ahead and stand to our feet. What I want to do for our invitation this evening is a little bit unusual. I want to have a mass funeral. I'm sure as I've been speaking here this evening, God's been putting the dots together. He's been supplying applications that I have not supplied. And as we've been speaking here this week, God puts his finger on our hearts through the preaching of his word. And God, I am sure, has put his finger on areas of stubbornness 
areas where you have gotten that crazed look in your eye, you've refused to put your sins to death or your sons to death or those matters of self to death in your life. And the fact is, is you have been refusing to surrender unconditionally to God because you don't want to die this evening what I want to do is this in a moment the piano is going to play and when the piano plays I want to encourage you I have not pushed this at all this week but here tonight I think it's important that if God has spoken to you I want to urge you if you're physically able to come and kneel before the Lord or sit on the front pew I want you to have a funeral I want you to say God I'm willing to follow you to to my death I'm willing to die to fill in the blank in fact I'm willing to die to anything and everything that you call me to die to Lord I don't want to do my will I want to do yours God I completely and absolutely surrender my life my will my preference to you and I believe that if we have a mass funeral here tonight. We're going to have a mass harvest as well. It's what he promised. As God has spoken to you specifically here this evening, as the piano plays, I want to urge you to come. Thank you for listening to this podcast. To learn more about Grace Baptist or how to have eternal life, visit gracekettering.org. And remember, you are always welcome at Grace Baptist Church.